Hey, this is Taylor Elder. Thank you for tuning in to Working and Living While Black, a show that explores life as a black woman in the workplace. You can catch the show every week right here. All right, hello again. Uh, it is me, Taylor, uh, host. Uh, and today I have Deja Owens. Uh, I met Deja through a contact, and so it's really great getting to know people outside of my network. I think um, I love sharing the experience of people that I know, but I think that the conversations are more meaningful when you expand um, the conversation and you have more people at the table. Uh, So Deja, uh, would you like to share a little bit about yourself? What industry do you work in? Yes, totally. Thank you, Taylor, for having me. Uh, My name is Deja Owens, and I currently work in the public sector. I am a program manager for the Child Support Enforcement Agency in Franklin County. I've been working here for a few months, and my prior background is in nonprofit work. That's really cool. I was, um, we were kind of talking offline and I'm just like, anytime anyone is talking about nonprofit or community engagement, I'm just like, okay, I'm obsessed with this person. Um, I do feel like there's just, it makes a big difference when it's like your work has a meaningful impact on Mm -hmm. the community. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that something that you kind of wanted early on or was it something that you kind of found yourself in? It was very early on. I remember freshman year, I was actually a nursing major, pre-nursing. And I just kept failing chemistry. (laughs) I could not pass chemistry to save my life. So I literally went into my advisor's office and I was like, man, Eric, like, I just want to help people. And this is not working how I (laughs) need it to work. Like, I have taken this class twice. I keep failing it. I just want to help people and make people's lives better give people a voice who necessarily wouldn't have a voice and he was like okay well let's try out this major so he I had never heard of human development and family studies before HDFS is how they call it Um, and he's like let's try out HDFS see how it goes took the first class got enrolled it was it was a hit it was like I was meant to do it I my GPA was like a 2.0 to like literally Dean's list. Like it was just meant to be. Um, So yeah. (laughs) That's really cool. I, I had such a struggle. I was in biology um, before I changed my major to public (laughs) affairs and similar. However, I got out right before chemistry. I had, I had credits for biology (laughs) and I was like, okay, great. Um, I think I failed physics and I was like, next is chemistry chemistry and I was like nope we're gonna change now I'm not doing this Um, so I feel like it's great to know that like there are people who are blessed to be doctors and like Mm -hmm. nurses and are you know given that gift and like work hard to get it and there's other people I think like us who are like you know this science is not for me but I'm gonna move over here Exactly. I completely agree. It's like we were kind of conditioned to think the only way we could really help folks was through the medical field. And it's Mm -hmm. like our my eyes were open once I got to college and realized there's so many different ways to help people um, and meet them where they're at. That does not involve failing chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't need this. I don't need to remember this. I don't need to keep moving with this in my life. I'm going to leave you here in college and I'm Mm -hmm. going to move on with what I'm supposed to be doing. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. 
Um, I noticed in the nonprofit sector that it's really um, dominated by, you know, women um, in certain roles, and that goes all the way mm-hmm. up to leadership. Is that similar in HDFS? Yes, completely. Okay. Um, there were, I had, you know, certain classes with guys and it was always, you know, good, but the majority, it, it was kind of like the exact merit of like my nursing program, pre-nursing program, where everyone um, was, you know, a, a woman and that was HDFS. <laughs> um, I feel like there is like something where I feel a little bit more comfortable. It's like, it's not, I don't really notice it as much because I feel that I've always been in a more female dominate um industries or, mm-hmm. you know, either nonprofit sector. Um, right now I'm in kind of local government and I think it's kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm always interested, like in the business world, would I notice it more? I feel like probably so. And this is just an assumption because I've literally never worked in the private sector mm-hmm. a day in my life, except for KFC when I was 16. <laughs> I don't really count though. <laughs> it does not count at all. Um, but I feel like you would definitely notice it more because it would be fewer women. Mm-hmm. That's just, you know, I think that's a, a pretty clear assumption you can make. And what about the public or public sector then? Since I've not been in the public sector. So do you think mm-hmm. that it's more diverse or do you think it's kind of similar to nonprofit? It's definitely more diverse because there's so many different positions mm-hmm. within the public sector. Like we have IT departments, we have budgeting departments, we have fiscal departments, we have, it's not just, you know, everyone's doing case management, right? Like that's a, a pretty common nonprofit position is case management. Everyone's doing that. No, like there's so many different kind of positions within a government organization that it is very um, diverse when it comes to gender. Very diverse. That's really cool. Um, I I feel like there is this push for um, more diversity, more diversity in the workplace. But I do feel like there's when I see that the public sector is reflecting. Um, the people that they're serving, that's really important. And mm-hmm. I think that that's important in every setting. However, I feel like that's a struggle that we see in the nonprofit sector. Um, do you, did you have that experience? Yes. Up until the job I'm at now with Franklin County, I had never had a superior that was a black woman wow. um, ever. Um, I never had a superior that was a black man. Ever. The deputy director of our agency is a black woman and she is literally amazing. She's a badass, like <laughs> literally amazing. And I work around and with other people above me, but like below her, but above me who are also black women. Mm-hmm. And prior to being in the public sector, I had never worked in an environment like that before. All the nonprofits I had worked at in the past, my managers, coworkers, um, superiors, directors were all either white, male, or white women. Wow. I, I think that that's not, I say wow as in like that's shocking, but it's really like it's not, but it's more it's like, like commonplace. <laughs> yeah. And it's like wow when I think about it, but then I'm like, no, wait a minute. I've experienced all of this. Um, totally, totally. I think also I've noticed on certain boards where you have predominantly um, Caucasian individuals who are 
really well off and they're representing an organization that works with individuals who are struggling to make ends meet. And I think that that's really kind of ironic Mm -hmm. in a way of, do you actually know what this person's struggle is? Do you really know what the issues are? Um, Do you feel like those it's, do you feel like you have a challenge having those conversations or is that something where it's like, in your experiences, it was kind of like you're able to talk about that. It's not something I ever felt comfortable talking about. Um, coming from Bowling Green, it was a predominantly white, like white small town. Um, black folks and folks of color are already the minority. Well, in Bowling Green, you're like the super minority. <laughs> um, so technically, the board did represent the the majority of folks who were there as far as race um, and culture goes now, as far as wealth and um, socioeconomic status, that's a whole different conversation. Um, but also the thing about it is that who, who usually has the time and resources and bandwidth to sit on these boards mm-hmm. It's usually well-off rich white folks because people who are, um, are either black or lower income people, they don't have the time to go to a board meeting. They have to make sure they can work their three jobs to feed their children. Mm-hmm. They have to make sure they, they have food on the table because they didn't yesterday. Does their kid have money for school lunch? You know, like those are the things that they're worrying about. So they don't have the bandwidth to even think, oh, I should go sit on this board. That's not a conversation normal folks have. Yeah. I, and I feel like even when you are, I, we, I had an interview with, um, some, some woman who was on a board, she's black woman. And she was saying, you know, you look around and people don't really look like you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's almost there. And I feel like I see this in multiple situations. It's not just, Mm -hmm. you know, a nonprofit higher ups, but like even when I was in like certain school or certain classes, even when I am in certain job positions, I feel like I somehow either represent, like people might look at me like I represent my culture and I'm like, no, that's not the case. But at the same time, I feel like there is a part of me that feels like I have to make it known for my culture. Like it's, it's a conflict. Yes. I totally like feel that. And an example, just like, popped in my head my last year of grad school we had a class it's kind of like our capstone thesis class where you like the, the end of the program project you had to do um but we had you know different lectures to go along with that and I was one of three black people people of color in my entire cohort um of like 20 plus um about 15 to 20 folks and this one, one particular class we were sitting in, I, I was the only black person in class that day. Um, and we were talking about issues surrounding race. And I felt like I had to speak up simply because I was the only one of a different race in the room. Not necessarily because I wanted to, but literally it felt like all eyes were on me. Like, okay, what the black girls got to say, you know, <laughs> like that's literally how I felt. So, and I am very blunt and I have a, a mouth. So I was going <laughs> to say something anyway, <laughs> but it like, you feel obligated to be mm-hmm. like, you know, the mouthpiece for black people and more specifically black women. Yeah. I, I definitely 
feel that way. I feel also that sometimes I I'm put in a position where I have to acknowledge my blackness. Mm -hmm. Like I don't really go into the office and I haven't had this in my work experiences, but in life, you know, like I don't really go somewhere and I go, Oh, I'm black and I'm going to go to the grocery store. Oh, I'm black. And I'm going into this meeting. Like that usually doesn't happen. However, there's situations where it's like someone just acknowledges or someone brings it up or something happens. And I'm like, Oh, I have to acknowledge that this impacts me somehow. Yes. And it's so draining the energy that black women expel every day that no one would ever even think about. Like no Mm -hmm. one would just sit if you weren't a black woman, you wouldn't just sit and think about that. Yeah. I, I remember in, um, there was one time in high school and I went to a predominantly white school, mm-hmm. um, well off. I, it was a blessing that I got a great education, but I hated my experience there. <laughs> yes. Um, but we were talking about black history, of course, in February. Course. And I, there was a point where we got to, um, just slavery and then lynching. And I, felt like there was no one else in the room that was black. And I just kind of felt that like someone was kind of like turning around and looking mm. for my response in a way. Um, and it was like those moments, it was like micro, you know, that it really does force you to feel like you have to acknowledge race. Yes. Yes. Totally. Like I, in, in college, I went to a predominantly white church And I remember we were having dinner one time um, before one of our Bible study groups and we were just all talking and I don't really know how the topic of slavery came up, but one of the girls like literally like giggled and looked at me being the only black girl at the table. And she's like, so Deja, how do you feel about slavery? What do you think? And I was like, uh, it's bad. <laughs> like, I didn't know. <laughs> Not I good. Like, well, I'm eating my chicken tenders, yeah. my black business. <laughs> and she's like, so what do you think about slavery, Deja? I'm like, uh, girl, it's bad. Like, yeah. what? Um, so, yes. <laughs> like, zero out of ten? Like, should I rank it? Like, I don't <laughs> know. But, yeah, the microaggressions, I would say is what adds up to real trauma for black women in and out of the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's almost like you wear a sleeve with a patch of like, Oh, this is the microaggression of the day or of the week or of the month. And it's really disturbing (laughs) that we just kind of have to live by that. You know, we, and I think it's also this podcast focuses on being a black um, individual, but also being a woman in that intersection Mm -hmm. And I feel like there are times where I feel like, oh, that's an aggression towards being a woman. And then I'm like, oh, that's aggression towards being a black woman. And Mm -hmm. it's like three different layers. It's not just being someone who's black. It's not just being a woman. It's also being a black woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you ever feel like those intersections affect your life? All the time, (laughs) you know, like literally all the time. Um, Because like you're fighting for two different battles, right? There's racial injustice, racial equity, um, white supremacy and violence, but then there's also misogyny and misogynoir. And if we're just talking statistics, being someone who's come from a domestic violence background in my professional career, Mm -hmm. black women are more likely to die at the hands of a black man than they are at the hands of racism. So if we're talking about what, like, what's the biggest threat to black women, 
racism is up there. However, Mm -hmm. numbers don't lie. That is one of the top five killers of black women next to heart disease. Oh my goodness. It's domestic violence. Yes, domestic violence is one of the top killers of black women in America. And so it's like, I have to battle racism on the outside the black community. But inside the black community, there's a deeper battle going on, a bigger, larger battle going on. I had no clue that the numbers were that. I like, I don't think... I think about that, which is one of those, like, it's one of those, like, privilege situations, you know, where it's like, oh, that's a privilege that I have. But that's mm-hmm. so unfortunate that, like, behind heart disease, which we already know is a really high, you know, instance within the Black community, um, do you feel that being in an environment where social justice is your focus, that it does impact the rest of your life as well? Yes, I totally feel. I've always felt that way, being that I've always simply wanted to help people Um, and just social justice because I'm a woman, because I'm a black woman. It just came natural to me to be in that space. Um, But then also constantly being entrenched in Mm -hmm. the harm and the trauma that black folks are experiencing, that black women are experiencing, it takes a toll on your mental health. Um, And it's very easy to get overwhelmed and get anxious and to always feel like you have to always be on guard. Yeah, I definitely can attest to that in my own personal experiences as well. Um, I was talking with you off the offline, but there was a point where I was in a position and it was so much stress and it was like, I was doing social good, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm making an impact, but it was at the cost of my own health. Yes. Um, I had to go into the ER at one point and like, I was like, my heart is like hurting. There's something wrong with me. And they're like, there's nothing wrong. And it probably could have just been anxiety, but like, they literally were just like, there's nothing wrong with you. You need to go home. Um, and I just feel like when you're fighting these things and this is something that we're doing intentionally, like we are deciding to be in this, but then there's also people who just go to work every day and they have to deal with the microaggressions. They have to deal with um, systematic racism within the workplace and like Mm -hmm. how that builds up on their health. Yes. Yes, totally. And it takes a toll deeper than I think anybody probably would realize. So for example, when you, as a black woman, and you see or hear something in the workplace that you know is not right, that you know um, we could be treating clients better than this. We shouldn't be talking to clients this way because they're low income, because they're, we shouldn't be looking down on clients because of, you know, X, Y, or Z. You have to weigh in your head, do I say something and speak up and risk retaliation? Because there will be, no matter what your company policies are, whether it's more microaggressions, whether it's passive aggressiveness, there will be some kind of repercussion, whether it's just your own anxiety in your head saying, talking to yourself saying, when will they, you know, do anything to me? 
just be, just like walking into work anxious, yeah. you have to wait. Do I want to deal with that or should I just keep silent and let it go? Mm-hmm. They're not going to exchange anyway, so should I just let it go? So you constantly, constantly weigh that. When someone is saying or doing something like to you and it's a microaggression, do I bring it up? Do I just, you know, brush it off? Is it more trouble than it's worth? And that's the constant battle that I feel the majority of us Black women have to weigh in the workplace. Yeah, because I feel like some might, the passion that you have or, you know, you just bringing something up, they might think that you're difficult or you're an angry Black woman or something along those lines where it's, there are certain situations where I think you can be professionally and rightfully angry or upset about something and still be communicating it in a, you know, a good range. Mm -hmm. And yet someone's still going to take it as, oh, you're being difficult. Oh, because you're angry black woman. You're being irrational. You're Mm -hmm. trying to make trouble. You're being divisive. That's like the biggest one is that you're being divisive. You're trying to cause, you know, um, divides within the workplace and you're lowering morale and the list just goes on and on. Um, and it makes you just, it's just like, what's like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. I might as well just sit here, do my task and go home. Yeah. I think there is that, that divisive piece you brought up. I think that that's something where it's, you don't want to seem divisive because mm-hmm when you look into the future, you know, you have, oh, I could be coming up for a promotion. I could be doing, you know, someone might think that this is like a great opportunity for me. I'm doing well in my job. But if I go and bring this one piece up, even, even if that's because you're black, because I've heard that from male perspective as well, or Mm -hmm. because you're a woman, um, I think that that both sides, you're like, I'm at a disadvantage. Yes. No matter what you, no matter what you choose. And it's like, you also have to weigh and consider, will someone have my back in this? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, people talk in the lunchroom, in the break room, people have conversations. And if there's a collective group of people that see the same issue going on, if you speak up, will they have your back? They may seem nice. They may be an ally. But they're going to also consider their survival. Yeah. So nine times out of ten, you're going to be left out in the cold by yourself battling this issue when everyone had the problem, but you're the, you're the only one who had the courage to speak up, and you also happen to be the Black woman. <laughs> it's like, this is not making a great picture for me. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was reading this um, book, and I unfortunately was not able to complete it, but um, my group was talking about it at work and we were talking about, it's called a racial healing handbook. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have not. Um, It's an interesting read. Uh, There was one part where they talk about not, not thinking of yourself as an ally, but an accomplice. Mm. And that conversation was really, um, I think it was like a controversial one. It was a good conversation, but it was, you know, ally, I think it has a better connotation, but mm-hmm. accomplice, it almost feels dirty in a way. Yeah. Um, but I think that I question, like, do we need accomplices in social justice? Mm-hmm. Um, because that means that you're in the fight too. You're in this yeah. conversation just as equally as I am. 
Exactly. And if we're just speaking plainly about dismantling white supremacy, they cannot be accomplished. They, they need to be the criminal. They need to be the people doing the work. Black folks have been doing this work since we have stepped foot on this freaking continent. Mm-hmm. And we are still in the same fight 400 plus years later. So clearly there needs to be a change of who the leader in this movement is. Yeah. There has to be. There has to be. You cannot just settle for being an accomplice because accomplices usually get less time in prison. That was, they that's... can be flipped. They can, you know, if you testify against your partner, we'll give you less time. We'll give you a plea deal. So you have a chance at getting off. No, we cannot let y'all off the hood. Y'all have to be the people. And we can be y'all's accomplice. Like, let's just switch, let's <laughs> switch like, places. <laughs> like, we need a break. We need like, a I'll break. I'll be on the sideline real quick. Let you kind of deal like with Like some Batman and Robin type stuff? No, Black <laughs> folks need to be Robin. And y'all can be Batman. And y'all go. And because they're y'all people. They're y'all people. Mm. Get y'all people. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an interesting perspective. Because I, I always feel like I... There was a point in time last year where I was having these conversations at um, the place I was serving and everything, and they were good conversations, uh, but I was telling my mom about it, and I was saying, I don't feel like it is my job to educate individuals. I don't. It's exhausting. I'm tired. Um, And this was during, you know, all of the stuff that was happening over the summer, Mm -hmm. um, just a lot of unrest, and rightfully so. But I think that it really did tie into my workplace too of, Mm -hmm. are we not having these conversations? And it's like, at what part is it my responsibility to push forward the initiatives that, Mm -hmm. you know, someone else has passed me the baton. Like, I think that our generation, like it is our time to have the baton, but we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be running the same race. Exactly. We have been fighting for the same, you know, rights that's even within in and out of the workplace. Um, but I feel like it's the same battles that we fight the same mm-hmm. amount of like, we're asking for your respect, um, to be seen as human. Yes. That's at the root of everything is to be seen as human. That's literally what it comes down to. And to speak to what you were saying about, you know, it being your job or not your job to educate folks within your workplace or, you know, outside. Um, I have been thinking about considering that too in this context of when there is a a police involved shooting with an unarmed black person, right? Mm -hmm. And this week alone, (laughs) there's been how many? Um, And there were times during the week where I mentally... I I wasn't there. I was just mentally exhausted from all the violence and the pain within just one week. And I would go to work and it's just like nothing happened. Like no one is moved. It's like I was listening to a podcast yesterday, actually, with a few different um, black activists uh, around the country. And they were saying like how we get paternity leave and Um, maternity leave and you get sick leave and funeral leave we need black trauma leave we need mental (laughs) health we need mental mental health days 
for when black death is plastered on the news, no matter what channel you turn to. Yeah. Like, how do you expect us to watch down the evening news and then come in Monday morning smiling and giggling? But we do it. We put that mask on. We put that face on. Like, everything's fine and okay. And, haha, yeah, that's awesome. No. We are exhausted in every corner of life. And it's even more exhausting having to hide that we're exhausted. Yeah. I think there is a lot of energy in my personal life. I don't know, you know, I can't speak on behalf of everyone, but I do feel like I put a lot of energy in just trying to move forward, just trying Mm -hmm. to push on. And Mm -hmm. it is kind of consuming me at this point. My whole, my whole practicum is on social justice. And then (laughs) my master's program, like it's focused on social justice, which is great. And I am Mm -hmm. here for it. That's why I chose it. Um, my, job is focused on social justice and kind of community engagement. Like that's great. And I love it so much. Mm -hmm. And then I get to my other parts of the life of my life, you know, the media, what I have to walk down the street and make sure that I'm not, um, being weird in the neighborhood that I live in. Like those are possible concerns. And I know I look a little bit, um, more put together sometimes, but sometimes I don't, you know, like yeah, I no, don't, yes. I don't want to have to deal with all of those pressures every single day of my life. And yet we move on. Yeah. We, we wear do. that mask. Mm-hmm. We do. And we do it so graciously. Mm. Like black women are some of, not some, the most beautiful creatures on this earth. And I'm not just talking about outside beauty, I'm talking about the strength and the courage we have to persist in the face of literal death. Everyone, in theory, wants Black women dead, whether it's via racism and white supremacy or via misogyny and misogynoir. Everyone is at Black women's throats. And the fact that we get up every day knowing full well how much of a threat our lives are, how much of a threat that we have against us, we still go into work we still raise families we still find some way to find joy to be happy that in itself is beautiful and no one else on this planet compares to that I'm sorry I'm biased maybe but (laughs) like nothing compares to that show me someone else another group of people who has to deal with everything black women do and do it with a smile and with grace I don't know another group yeah, I feel, I feel like, and I kind of wanted to open up this conversation to other minority women in general, mm-hmm. but I did feel as though um, the conversation about Black women specifically mm-hmm. and their experiences weren't being, you know, heard. Yeah. Um, they weren't being understood. You know, you look at different things and it's almost like we have our own little square somehow, mm-hmm. which I don't know why that exists, but mm-hmm. it's almost like a gray square and we just kind of have to live within our gray square. Cause it's like, it doesn't quite connect with every group in the same way. No, no, not at all. That's why I stopped using the term people of color when I'm referring to black people because there are black people and then there are people of color. And that is a, it's a very distinct reason why white supremacy was birthed out of anti-blackness. That is where all other hatred for all other races started 
it began with anti-blackness. There's not a community in this world you can go to that does not have some type of anti-blackness racism in it, including the black community. Being black, you can be anti-black in certain ways. Mm-hmm. You, you can perpetuate white supremacy also. You can't do that with other groups of people. Black people are the only group that everyone collectively, including black folks, have a problem with. And that is because from the very beginning of colonization, it started out as being anti-black. And then it spread to Asian countries. Then it spread to Caribbean countries. But it started with African, black African countries. Mm-hmm. And we can't get away from that. We can't lump everyone together because there is a hierarchy with one or two Admit it or not, it, no one's proud of it, but there is a racial hierarchy in who gets the brunt of the pain and the trauma. Mm. And just adding on being a woman, man, <laughs> we are at the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah, I think about that specifically within the U.S., um, just because I don't know too much about other cultures, but I do think about that in the U.S. Um, with like if you think about like voting rates or any, mm-hmm. there's a lot of road rates that we can think about <laughs> now that I think about it. Um, but like voting rights or like civil rights or whatever. Um, so voting rights, you know, you had individuals with land, usually white males, like mm-hmm. that's the person who has the ability to vote, to own land, whatever it is. And then it was, okay, women now have rights to mm-hmm. vote. Um, however, that did not mean necessarily black women that did not mean black men so then when we talk about the right to vote for black individuals then it goes to yes we understand that it's black men and women but we really understand that it was black men mm-hmm. and then it trickles down to black women exactly and so it I, is a line yeah. oh i'm sorry yeah. um i was just gonna say um it's this activist um, her name is erica hart and she always says to be, to be black is to be a man and to be woman is to be white. Mm-hmm. There's no black woman involved in that. Yeah. I definitely, in that equation. I definitely can see that 100%. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we pay for the grace that we have for, you know, being um, resilient individuals? I do you think that we pay for it in our health? Because I do. I definitely do. I eat like nobody's business. <laughs> and it's just a comfort thing. I feel like Black women, we have to find comfort in something. And sadly, the things we usually find comfort in, be it food or, um, you know, recreational drugs, alcohol, um, whatever we find comfort in sometimes end up harming us physically. Um, Black women, heart disease, the number one killer of black women. And I just learned that a few months ago. I knew obviously because of black people in our genes, (laughs) diabetes and high blood pressure, all of that. But I didn't know heart disease is the number one killer of black women. And it's not just attributed to, food is mm-hmm. the stress yeah. that we are put under it's the stress I definitely feel like I that stress piece and mm-hmm. I was um for my undergraduate uh paper um graduation paper I think it was technically a capstone um I focused on uh 
infant mortality, but then also kind of touched upon maternal mortality and everything like that. And there was this piece where we wonder why black infants are die. I think it was like two to three times more than, um, you know, white infants, but Mm -hmm. then also the mothers and how they die at a higher rate than others. And I understood that some of a large portion of that was stress, but not even specifically to them, but it was like the systematic things that they have to deal with on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and how that does impact their pregnancy at a different, in a totally different way than it does someone else. Yes, completely. Um, Black women, it may have rose over the last year, sadly, but from the statistics from 2019, Black women are five times more likely to die during childbirth than any other race of women. Five times more likely. Every year, this is from 2019, every year 750 women die from childbirth complications. Mm. Take that five times number and just imagine how many of that 750 are Black women. Most of them are Black women. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is, and I, I think about these things. I, I think, okay, I'm 25. I'm probably headed towards that way one day, right. you know. Right. Um, and it's weird to think about that when I'm not even married. I'm not, not pregnant. It's like, why am I stressing over those things? And like, yes. that still already impacts me right now. Yes, like me and my best friend, we talk about it often. And, you know, my best friend, she's in graduate school. I, you know, I'm in a relationship, but not, you know, we're not married right now. Um, I want kids soon, but we're like, we talk about like, should we have a birth in the hospital? Black women die in hospitals. Yeah. Should we have a home birth? Should we have a midwife? Should we have a doula? Neither one of us are anywhere near <laughs> <laughs> pregnant. We're not pregnant right now, but we have to think ahead. And then even further after the birth, do I want to bring a black son or daughter into this country? Mm -hmm. Do I want that for another human being? Even though I want children more than anything in the world, but I know what their experience would be. Mm-hmm. I know no matter how much I love and protect and teach them what it is to be a black person in America, more specifically a black daughter in America, mm-hmm. do I want that for another human? Or should I have a child for selfish reasons because I, 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 I want to be a mom? I don't know. I don't know. You're, you're kind of making me like, I'm trying to hold back tears on this side because I've definitely had those <laughs> conversations and thoughts before of, I, if I'm having, you know, these conversations, if I'm seeing all of this and people are just trying to live their lives and unfortunately they are taken from that because of hatred, because of, you know, bigotry, whatever that be, do I, do I give a piece of myself to the world to say, oh, now you can have one of my offspring too. Like there's something wrong to have to think about that. That, uh, don't get me in tears, but like, <laughs> it's, it's really just so heavy. It's so very heavy, but we also can't not just not think about it. Yeah. We can't escape it. So it's like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. What do you do? 
And I think that these conversations, you know, even though they don't, part of our conversation, you know, pertains specifically to the workplace, but part of it was just kind of life in general. I think these conversations in the workplace can really show the humanity of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I can look past microaggression. I can move past whatever this is. Um, however, there's those real situations that do impact me outside of work. And now mm-hmm. I have to go back into work and I have to now wear this mask and I can't present that to anyone. And it's like, exactly. there's a way to be professional, but like, there's this expectation that I just have to show one part of me. Exactly. And even if you were to show your real self in its full form as a black woman, it's like, how would that be received? You don't know this person's level of consciousness when it comes to racial injustice. Mm -hmm. You don't know if you're opening yourself up to more racial harm by being your full self. Because we know the narratives that are generally attached to Black women who are living in their full Blackness, their full bliss. And it's like, it's like a protectiveness. Let me put on this mask, put on this shield for the day so I can protect myself from whatever racial shenanigans that would take place <laughs> in the workplace. And there are folks who have good intentions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Folks that may not intend to be racist, but your intentions, <clears throat> sorry, um, your impact matters more. Mm-hmm. Um, today we, there was a, um, housing and in housing and inequity um discussion and we were talking about how that looks in Columbus, Ohio, um in Franklin County. And it was interesting because one of the rules were, if I remember it correctly, it said, um, they said, expect good intentions, but understand impact. Yes. And I thought that was, I wrote it down and I found a red pen and made sure that it would stick out. <laughs> um, and I definitely feel like that's something that I want to remember in the future. I think that other people should as well of, you know, I, I hope that you have good intentions and you saying that might not have been what you meant to say, but the impact on me personally, that's valid too. Like your feelings are valid, but my feelings are just as equally as valid. Um, and I think that sometimes people just want to say my feelings are valid and yours aren't. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just it's about the comfortableness of it too, right? Because it's like, well, these are my intentions, and that's all that matters. And if I think about how it hurt you, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I can't mentally go there because that's just too overwhelming for me. So sorry if I harmed you, but also I'm going to protect myself. Mm. And that's really what this fight boils down to is the people care more about the comfort that their white privilege affords them, whether they want to admit it or not, than they care for other humans. Yeah. And that's what it boils down to. And it's like, I'm not telling you that, you know, the way that you grew up is all wrong. I'm not telling you that Mm -hmm. your grandpa was a horrible, horrible, horrible person he may have been racist and that is one <laughs> real issue that we should address right now. Yes. But he has somehow passed it on to you in certain <laughs> ways. We should address that. But I feel like there are individuals who 
I don't, I don't know if we can say racist and good in the same, you know, sentence, but who are not horrible individuals, but still are blinded by certain cultural things that we just don't acknowledge because it is uncomfortable. Yes, it's uncomfortable. And if you think about it, we're, we're conditioned in it, right? We're conditioned in white supremacy. We're all conditioned to think the same way about black people and people of color and to think separately about white folks, right? No matter what, we all either consciously or subconsciously were taught these things. So unless you become conscious to your conditioning and the society around you, you're not going to think anything is wrong. You're going to feel threatened. You're going to feel attacked. You're going to be like, but this is how everyone I'm around is. Mm-hmm. Everyone says these things. Everyone thinks this way. And if everyone is doing it, it can't be wrong, right? Yeah. And I wonder how many of those individuals are in professional settings who are doctors, who are lawyers, who are judges, mm-hmm. politicians. Um, yeah. And if we don't talk about these things and really address racism, address discrimination um, in the workplace. And I think that we're really missing the mark. I don't care what industry you're in, you're missing Mm -hmm. the mark because you're not creating a space where both all individuals can, you know, succeed in their roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's unfortunately systems. And I don't care if you're a new company and you have progressive views or if you're an old company and you're traditional. um, If you don't address those things, I think that we're really benefiting one group over the other yes and it's we're going to maintain the system forever if we don't talk about it in the workplace mm-hmm. I completely agree and it also needs to be said that because you hold one diversity training a year that does not exempt you from needing to do more work mm-hmm. diversity does not equal justice because you hired two people of color or two black folks that does not make you the beacon It just doesn't make you the beacon of justice. Doesn't make you the beacon of liberation. No, you're just you're just subconsciously meeting your quota, whether you intend it to or not. You're doing what you need to do so that outwardly you position your company and your organization as being friendly to all people. When in reality, y'all have not done the inner work to dismantle your own inner white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And also the cultural white supremacy within your organization. Yeah, I I completely hear you. Um, <laughs> there <laughs> there is this card that I saw recently, and it says you are acceptable. And I feel like that's just what we need to say. Like that is acceptable, yes. but that, that's like above <laughs> the mark. Like you just yes. did it, and that's we, the bare that, minimum. <laughs> yes, you've done the bare minimum. Let's see what else we can do. Yes, yes. Um, What changes do you hope to see uh, in the workplace? I would love to see in the workplace real, true, authentic accountability. When someone um, Black or a person of color or um, a woman brings to the attention of the leadership, like, hey, this is an issue that is negatively affecting me, don't try to excuse it. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to gaslight the person simply say we see you we hear you we're sorry how can we make it better and let it in there um all the other things that should be said or could be said 
they aren't needed they aren't because clearly something is, is is doing harm anytime someone is being harmed in the workplace the only answer to that is accountability anything else is bs I don't want to add any more words to that. I 100% agree. <laughs> Accountability is the only way we can move forward. Well, thank you so much, Deja. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you, getting to know you a little bit more. Um, and I really do hope to, that we do see accountability in the workplace and creating a plan for that. I think that that's the first step. I completely agree. Um, thank you so much, Taylor. I had a great time talking with you. I love when people give me a chance to just babble. I could literally talk <laughs> forever. So thank you for having me. <laughs> and thank you also for listening. Uh, I am excited. We're getting towards the end, um, but I am excited to be recording more episodes, um, to have more interviews and just kind of having these candid conversations that I think are definitely necessary for moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, Listen back next week. <laughs>